0: give me me that which I desire.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of Metallicast the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. This is an exciting episode for me because it is a sequel of sorts to episode nine. So, if you've not yet listened to episode nine, I'm not sure what the hell you're doing here, press stop, go back to your podcast app, download Episode 9, check it out. That is titled St. Anger Talk with Richard S. He. And basically, give you a little bit of background on my friend Richard. He is a music pop culture journalist as well as a musician himself. And he has written for a variety of publications, uh, Billboard. um, Most recently, just to show his variety. I know that he had an article published in Vulture where he ranks every Lady Gaga song. And I'll mention that one because there is actually a a Mataka connection there, (laughs) as weird as that may be. And But just to show his variety, he also wrote an article for Red Bull where basically he goes on for 7,500 words in defense of Saint Anger even going as far as calling it their final masterpiece, so I'm just saying that's sort of an introduction. Go back and listen to that episode, and let me introduce or reintroduce, I should say, maybe my friend, journalist and musician extraordinaire, Mr. Richard S. C. Richard. Welcome back to Metalcast.
0: Hello, pleasure to be here. What an intro. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I want people to know what they are in store for because this is such a controversial album. And if you are looking for our overall opinions or an overall dissection of the sound, um, the influence or lack of influence, some might argue, of that album, you know, Episode 9 is the place to go and check that out. This is going to be where we dive into the nitty-gritty. We are going track by track, breaking down perhaps the most controversial Metallica album to date. I'm not including Lulu in that, so I guess I will say the most controversial Metallica album to date, Saint Anger. Richard, how excited are you for this?
0: I feel like I've been waiting 15 years for this, to be honest. (laughs) Well, Still got some, uh, some issues to work through, maybe?
1: I don't know. I feel like I have, as a Metallica fan, as some might say a biased Metallica fan, who seems to defend them no matter what, I feel like I've been defending this album to naysayers and even to other Metallica fans for the last 15 years. And what you put into writing... Seventy five hundred words or so of writing, uh, much of which I agree with. And I was like, "I need to get this man on my podcast because you are speaking my language." And we hinted at during that episode that you may return, and here you are, just a couple months later, for the epic track by track. So I just can't get enough. Who can? besides a lot of people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll make it up for them, yeah.
1: But I would say, even if you're listening to this and you're like, this album is not my cup of tea, this album is... never really could get behind. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a hardcore Metallica fan. So I think you will still get a lot out of this. And, you know... There are going to be a couple moments where even I, perhaps, are a little bit critical. And I rarely am. And uh, we'll see how critical uh, Richard gets. But more than that, we're not going to just give our opinion on the songs. We're going to go into the lyrics. We can explore some possible song meanings. And, of course, the actual music, um, both of us being... Musicians, I know that uh, Richard is very excited to explore some polyrhythms uh, for, for My Worlds, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Oh, yeah. So let's jump right into this, Richard. We're going to go in order of the album, starting with track one, Frantic. So I was reading a rumor that Lars Ulrich actually originally wanted to name this album frantic, um, which is interesting because the word actually comes up again later in the album too. And it seems to sort of maybe be a one of the main feelings, um, that they are trying to purge here on this record.
0: Yeah, I think they bring it up in some kind of monster, right. Um, I feel like Lars is for the the title frantic, and like everyone else, kind of votes him down.
1: Yes, I remember that scene.
0: Yeah, and And I mean, like, I get where he's coming from.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's take a look at the. This is what I I kept I made some notes because, as I brag every episode, I am a podcast professional. I (laughs) am. Um, and I find this to be the perfect opening track to the sound because it is old-school Metallica, but through what I'll call the St. Inger filter. has the down-tuned guitars. It has what some might call the raw or muddier production. You have that classic snare sound that hits you, and you have the lyrics, which sort of... You know, we're going to see a lot of lyrical themes uh, throughout these songs in this album.
0: Yeah, um but saying that, I do feel like um it's like the rhythmic approach is familiar. The guitar riffing feels a bit familiar, like especially if you look up on YouTube, there are versions where people have tuned uh, Frantic back up to E because most of the album is in a C tuning, which is a bit lower, which Metallica have never really... Revisit it again. No, but if you hear it in a e, like eight material, it sounds a little bit more familiar. Yeah, like you can see that um, it is kind of in continuation with their past work. I think.
1: Well, I always said if you took the songs off this album and it had a cleaner, more traditional production, and it had a cleaner, more traditional tones. You would, for the most part, have a classic sounding Metallica album the the songs there are weird moments, but it's not the songs themselves that are really the weird, odd part of this album
0: yeah, you're right. it's like the overall presentation yeah and
1: yeah. I, and I think too the the lyrics of Uh, a lot of these songs are were very dividing for even hardcore Metallica fans and if we take a look at the lyrics for Frantic I mean the most infamous line uh, especially for the haters is Frantic, Tick, 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 and a lot of people sort of had a I know a lot of people anyways that sort of had a chuckle at that line, thought it was goofy and thought it was kind of silly and amateurish and I think though and to be quite honest, that could be an argument for several of the lyrics and several of these songs in this album. And as we discussed in episode nine, I really do not think that's the point.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are very blunt lyrics. They're not, they're not poetic in the way that they're written, but I would argue that maybe they are in the subject matter. Um, in some kind of monster, when he's talking about Frantic Kirk, References this Buddhist concept called samsara, which kind of means uh, it's like the cycle of life and death and suffering and reincarnation, and that's uh, that's what frantic is about. You know, James references karma. Uh, he asks, you know, could I have my wasted days back? Would I use them to get back on track? And these are all very open-ended questions that I think the song doesn't really answer. Yeah, which is part of what. I find so interesting about it because metal is supposed to be cathartic it's meant to be about finding kind of emotional release and so much of Senega doesn't give you that even though it is very heavy and very aggressive
1: it's almost in my opinion as if the music throughout is the where the cathartic comes from where the purge comes from the music itself yeah. but the lyrics are juxtaposed because they're very vulnerable in a, and emotional in a different way than we see from uh, Metallica and a lot of other metal bands. And like you said, there's a lot of spirituality in this song. Um, it, it has to be noted that this is the only Metallica album um, in their catalog where the lyrics were shared by the band members. Um, yeah. So we're used to seeing you know, James Hetfield writing every single word. This one, James took lyrics from Lars, he took lyrics from Kirk, and he kind of made them his own, I would guess, and sort of mend them in with his words or blend them with his words into uh, a story you want to tell or in a emotion he wanted to release, and so like you said, when Kirk brought this spirituality element to it, with a uh, the Buddhist um, references and stuff. That is definitely a perfect example of
0: that. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, though these lyrics are quite personal, they don't read on the page, like a first person narrative or a diary, or even like a song like master of puppets, which has a kind of flow to it. Um, St. Angus lyrics are kind of all over the place. They jump around a lot. Um, And, adding to that in some kind of months you see how the other members contributed a little bit to the vocal melodies as well like when they're recording when james is recording the verse of frantic it's um bob rock who gives him a lot of feedback into how to shape the melody right so it's interesting it's like in some ways it's more personal but also a bit like disparate yeah spread out between people's perspectives and it's, hard to, it's hard to get a hold of, I'd say.
1: And the lyrics of a song like this coming from a man who just completed rehab and found sobriety after years of alcohol abuse, the lyrics line up, some of the lyrics line up perfectly with sort of um, that mindset. You know, you mentioned the line, if I could have my wasted days back, would I use them to get back on track? So it's funny how... You know they all contributed, but like you said, there's all this overlap into, um, you know, what James was going through. But I think this was also when the band was at an all-time low, and mm. when James went away to rehab, you see some, you see in some kind of monster, Lars and Kirk sort of sitting around wondering if the band is over or what the future of the band is. So I think like all of that too can play into a line like. If I Could
0: Have My Wasted Days Back. Yeah, very much, because I think a lot of the album's sound was crafted before James went into rehab, like the core production and the guitar tunings were already there. But I believe most of the songs were actually written and recorded. Um, Was it like 18 months later, when he came back from rehab? Yeah. So you have those kind of two Metallicas before and after trying to resolve themselves and um, trying to find that
1: They have the infamous, uh, well, infamous among hardcore Metallic fans, the Presidio tapes that are in a vault somewhere. And you you hear little snippets of it in some kind of monster. And if you go to YouTube or somewhere online, you can find little clips of songs. Temptation is the big one that people remember, I think, from the movie that has never been released. So I think, like you said, a lot of those Presidio songs were pre-Rehab. And a lot of what actually appears on the album is post rehab.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling that those Presidio songs are like even more raw and less crafted than what we got in the final product. So I kind of doubt there's like a holy grail there for the San Anger haters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I do like um, one thing we're going to see a lot in this album. I feel like more so than. Other Metallica albums. Well, Metallica always has these long epics that, you know, you have these heavy parts, you have these clean melodic parts. Like, if you, Master Pump is what you mentioned before, it's a perfect example where you have, you know, this epic uh, thrash metal song and then that beautiful clean interlude that builds back up. But Saint Anger, the way they use clean sections is different. And it's a lot more based around the vocal melodies rather than. The what the guitar is doing this time around.
0: Yeah, like when they do play clean guitar sections, like in the chorus of Frantic, it doesn't feel lush the way it does in Puppets or even like an acoustic intro like Battery. It's kind of just there. There's a bit of there's a feeling of emptiness.
1: I described it as more atmospheric.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which I think but it's kind
0: of it's not filling up the frequency spectrum. there's there yeah. is a bit of like emptiness there yeah yeah
1: for sure anything else to add on the opening track i mean the i think the riffs are killer the way it co- starts and it just pumps you the it's sort of classic metallica and before it brings you into some different directions
0: yeah i want to say that i love Laza's drumming on this i mean this is the thing that'll probably come up 11 times this podcast. <laughs> uh, um, I think I love the way he switches from the thrashy intro into the verses, the boom, boom kuh, ri- mm-hmm. uh, rhythm. It feels to me like John Bonham or something. It's just huge. Yeah. It's really enormous. And that's something that I think Lars does better than a lot of metal drummers. Like he just hits hard. Um, he grooves, he hits accents in a way that's like, um, It's, like, more hard rock than metal, in a way, I guess. Yeah,
1: and I think um, that that's interesting because I think one of the things we're going to see as we go through these tracks is a lot of times where Metallica's really playing one riff or, like, a a slight variation of riff, and the main variation is how Lars approaches the drums behind that riff, where he's going to take a riff and it's going to be... It's going to start as thrash, but by the time the vocals enter, it's going to be more groove than anything.
0: Yeah, it'll be a completely different song almost.
1: Right. But the riff itself is not drastically different. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> I, I'm trying not to give like better examples because I'm sort of hinting at uh, other songs uh, as we move through this. Anything else for Frantic before we move on to track two?
0: Um, I was thinking the other day that, like, the way it ends with that double time uh, speedier riff, you really could imagine a guitar solo there. Yeah. But that would probably drag the song by, like, another minute, so.
1: To me, that part is, you know, Bob Rock had said, and the band had said, uh, when doing press with this album, they wanted to make, uh, they wanted to take the biggest metal. Rock band in the world, and make it sound like they recorded it, yeah, it was like they were back in the garage. And to me, that riff is just such like a, like a classic old school riff a dun 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 ba dun, dun ba-da-da-da-da. Like it's just, and to me that just brings me back to like a garage like jamming with friends.
0: Totally, yeah.
1: And there's gonna be a lot of moments like that I think in these songs. I also want to say
0: that um, I recently did Frantic at karaoke, and it did not go over well. So
1: <laughs> Wait, did oh, they fun. actually have that as a song selection?
0: Yeah, amazingly,
1: because <laughs> it syncs up with like, the
0: video. Okay. So, yeah, very strange. <laughs> uh,
1: I recommend it if you want to have an existential crisis. <laughs> <The karaoke bar. laughs> oh, that is amazing. Track two. The title track, St. Anger.
2: Um,
1: I think this is a perfect example of what I sort of said before, where when you listen to the song, there's, it's really built around that one main riff, and they just sort of vary that riff. Um, tempo-wise and groove-wise, um, but it's really that one main riff that sort of stinks through this entire, what is it, eight minutes?
0: Yeah, I think Just Under. And I think the story is that um, apparently James came up with it on the spot, right? Like someone was saying, hey, we need a riff that's kind of twisty and like has a bit of palm muting, and James is like, oh, like this and just plays it. <laughs> on the
1: floor yeah i read that somewhere it's interesting and i and this definitely is another example of sort of you have that heavy part and then that sudden break like to me um when this album came out in 2003 i always think of system of a down during that time and one of the things they do so beautifully is the sudden dynamic changes chop Suey probably being the most famous example of theirs. Where they just go in they have like the heavy rips and then just that beautiful sweeping chorus. And to me, that's something that Metallica sort of duplicated on this album, but in their own way. And like Saint Anger, you sort of have the da 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 and then that sudden break. And but like we mentioned before, it's not lush sounding.
0: No, not at all. Um, one thing I only noticed recently is the way Senang Anger, the title track, kind of references Master of Puppets, the title track as well. I mean, if you mm. think about it, there's that classic template for Metallica albums, right? You've got the, you've got the fast aggressive opener, track one, Fight Fire with Fire, Battery, Blackened, Frantic, and track two is often the title track. It's a little bit slower, it's still aggressive, but um... St. Anger's main riff is actually pretty similar to Master of Puppets, right? It's yeah. also so mute It has a similar kind of phrasing going on. And Lars also um, accents it with his signature symbol chokes. Yeah. A little bit like, uh, not off time, but they extend the time signature a little. Right. So they feel a bit unnatural. Yeah. So in that way, I think it's referencing the past without like copying it.
1: Which is interesting, too, because the lyrics also reference the past. Uh, We hit the lights on these dark sets. Reference, obviously, to hit the lights off Kill Em All. Uh, Fuck It All and Fucking No Regrets. Obviously, a reference to Damage Inc. off the Master Puppets album. So...
0: And um, I think those two references are really interesting, because deliberately or not, um, they're the first and the last songs that Metallica ever put out with Cliff Burton.
2: Mm.
0: yeah. Um, and so, I think of Justice, uh, the album, as very much Metallica mourning Cliff Burton. Totally. And St. in a way, to be mourning Jason, because mm. Cliff's death was obviously something out of their control. It was horrifying, like, something you can't understand. But Jason's departure was very much of the band's own doing. In a way, it was like them, uh, it was completely unnecessary, and so I feel like they're trying to come to terms with that, those feelings of guilt and, like, uh, like emotional immaturity that they're wrestling with. Right. So, uh, what's interesting is that when, when James says, fuck it all and no regrets, I hit the lights on these dark sets. I interpret it as being a lot more optimistic, actually, than it sounded in...
2: Damaging.
0: I mm-hmm. think a little bit more. It's like they're trying to reclaim that part and be like, um, "We can move past it." Almost.
1: I think it's interesting too what you said about Cliff and Jason. So I feel like the Cliff burden stuff was never really dealt with, mm. you know, and I, that was part of the years of, um, for lack of a better word, I'll say, abuse that Jason may have taken from the band with or without ever really perhaps feeling like a full member of the band is sort of how the story goes and i wonder if you know this album is definitely jason Leaven was definitely sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and but i think it brought a lot of feelings from the past even going back to you know the loss of cliff burden to the forefront and i think the band had to tackle it really for the first time so when you have all this anger or you know from cliff and now from jason you're sort of referencing the past acknowledging that and letting it all go without getting too deep about it but
0: Mm. and they definitely weren't approaching the songwriting on this album as like the world's biggest rock man they weren't writing it but stadiums. Right. was like, they were writing themselves.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I got to address um, two things. One, the you flush it out. You flush it out. I remember hearing this... Alright, so this sort of ties in with my, uh, my second point. I remember hearing this song the first time on FM radio. I was a senior in high school, and I remember being so freaking confused as to what I was listening It it sounded like Metallica I knew it was Metallica but it sounded unlike anything they had done before it sounded unlike anything else on the radio really at that point and now you have that lyric you flush it out you flush it out and I know one of the things all the naysayers like to say I don't my brother who you know 15 years later the only argument he has he likes Metallica, but he always likes to bust my balls. The only argument he has to knock Metallica is, in his opinion, the St. Anger album. And he always references this line, and he calls it the Linkin Park line.
0: So sure, I get that. I, I feel like the haters is welcome to flush it out, though. Like, that's, <laughs> that's encouraged. <laughs> Whether you're with someone or not, <laughs> it'll give you something to light
1: I, I think too, like, I do not think a lot of um, new metal or like rap metal, whatever you want to call it, was an influence on this record. But I think it's sort of uh, when it, you're around that, when you're touring with these bands, when you're, you know, in the mainstream rock world that they were in at the time, some of it's going to seep in whether you're thinking of it or not.
0: Yeah, that was the default. Like, it was just in the air at the time. Yeah, And actually, I do want to ask, when you first heard San Anger, do you know if it was, like, the radio edit or the full seven-minute album?
1: Um, the first time I heard it, because I'm pretty sure they were hyping it up as the new Metallica single was coming out this time. So I think the first time I heard it, it was the full album version, and then the subsequent times was the shorter single version. And I, that, so that was another freaky thing was... Hearing in the bridge on FM radio, James Hetfield just start screaming. Yeah, set it free. Yeah, set it free. Like I have not, you have not heard him scream in that way, or even really make an attempt to scream since the Kill 'Em All days, and really that just only happened because he either did not have the singing chops at the time, or did not have confidence that he had the singing chops at the time. Mm, Exactly. It was a f- um, very I confusing. Was that, um, Listen.
0: <laughs> I was thinking that my editor at Billboard once wrote about sending they called the title track probably the strangest thing that rock radio programmers have ever been forced to play because, I mean, it was new Metallica. They kind of had to play it whether they liked it or not.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, Metallica coming back after like, well, four years really after I disappear. Um. But still, if you think about it, like the radio edit, it's shorter, but it's also no less strange. Yeah. Because it doesn't doesn't flow correctly. So yeah. it's in some ways it's deep
1: more jarring. I yeah. I hate I hate radio edits. I think they are the worst thing. And I I understand why bands do them. Um but like even if you if you hear the radio edit of like one or you hear the radio edit of Saint Anger or some kind of monster. Like, it just... It does not tell the complete story.
0: Exactly. For me, it's an argument that, like, Saint Anger's songs are the... They're the correct length for what they need to be, I think. Because even if you do cut them down, um, I think you lose a little bit of their kind of pummeling essence. Yeah. Like, in isolation, every song, in theory, like, should be shorter. But in the actual process of listening to it, it kind of, it kind of makes a strange sense.
1: I feel like part of the goal, one of the goals of this album was to exhaust the listener. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why the album is so long is because this album would not have the same effect if it was uh, a 30 or 45 minute album. If it was, if it was the length of ride the lightning, for example, it would not have the same effect.
0: Yeah, because it all, it's about repetition, and it's about having those kind of emotions pummeled into you until you either submit or you kind of get it, you know, you accept it. Yeah, I
1: think. and I, despite the fact that we're doing a track-by-track breakdown, I think this is an album that was not really intended to, like, listen to isolated track. I like to think of this album as, I, I mean, I most Metallica albums, I think, of as like an overall album. How does it flow? I think they're one of the few bands left out there who still consider their albums a true album. Um, but I think this album especially, because it's just such a unique um, piece in their catalog, that you really need to take it in the whole thing.
0: Yeah, very much so. It feels like its own sonic world, you know, like the... um Once you start hearing that snare and those guitars, like you're just submerged into it. Right. Either you got to turn it off or you have to keep listening. Right. Your hands are tight.
1: And we have some kind of monster, which I already referenced, track three. We've been saying this a lot because obviously it is also the name of the accompanying documentary that uh, really put so much back, necessary backstory into the making of this record.
0: Yeah, um, I do find it interesting because, um, I wonder how San Anger would have been received if some kind of monster had come out first or concurrently with the album. Because I think a year later, in 2004, once the documentary came out, people had already made up their minds about the Sandhanger and decided, oh, this is a bad album, or it's a, mm-hmm. well, not a sellout. And um, I think it kind of colors our perception of the film. Uh, yeah. Because it almost framed it in a more comedic lens. It's like people didn't want to identify with Metallica as much at that point.
1: Yeah. So.
0: I went into it thinking it was going to be like a real life spinal tap
1: yeah and I think with that movie too before we get into the song that movie you know again very divisive where you have it's very rare that you're going to see um, I would say most critics would put that on a list of one of the best music documentaries released and yeah, at the same time you have metalhead saying oh they're crying now you know which sort of is a perfect um you know going back to what we talked about in episode nine sort of the perfect way to treat this album because this is i think part of the reasons we said back then uh why the sound might be so divisive is this is a vulnerable record and it's not as as macho as it is at times he, james actually sort of stripping all that back
0: yeah they're very much working through their like adolescent arrest development right yeah like, like people say that um if you become famous your mental age stays trapped at like that age right and so the documentary is very much them trying well in some ways trying and failing at times to work through that because like actually growing is messy, you know. There's not a straight line to becoming like a complete healthy person.
1: Which I think is
0: you know, especially when. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Especially when you are, you know, nearing forty and isolated from the so-called real world, you're living that touring lifestyle. Um, you don't really have anything to keep you in check. Right. Right. Mm. And I
1: think that's a good transition into the song itself because to me when you look at the lyrics you know the whole premise of the song is that you're sort of you're building a Frankenstein type monster and I think that's how the band sort of view themselves as sort of in uh, uh, the lyrics when you look at the verses these are the legs these are the hands these are the feet whatever the specific, uh, specific lyric is it's sort of James like breaking himself down breaking the band down Uh, Piece by piece into what they have become which is just this monster of a band with all their success
2: Yeah,
0: um, I compare the lyrics to sad but true in that song about Sad but true is a song about a monster and at the end it's revealed that you know I'm you I'm inside you and some kind of monster is like the opposite it's like building ourselves into the monster the whole time right and climax is in that ominous I'm-in-us part. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's supposed to feel empowering or, like, uh, dangerous, but,
1: yeah. And this is one where... um, This is another example where you sort of have that main riff that snakes through the song with the different variations of it that, you know, Lars is altering his drum beat, and so you're you're having more groove-oriented parts and then you're having more thrashy-sounding parts, and it's really based around the drumming.
0: Yeah, um, this might be my favorite Lars drum performance on the album. Um, yeah, just the way he kind of fluidly switches between beats, but also the groove, the sheer groove of that verse is really interesting. Um, he moves the snare so that he's hitting it like every beat, so... On the one, two, three, and four, which gives it a really an interesting like off-time feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to point out that some kind of monster really has the only lead guitar part on the whole album. I was right? I was
1: going to say that it's the closest to a lead guitar that we have with a... <speaking in> the <background> at the beginning. That sort of comes yeah, back and- later.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that was recorded on like a $2 amp or something, yeah, but sure, I think that's really I'm cool. sure it was.
1: <laughs> the, the amount of guitars and amps that they used, it probably was like the first amp that James had in high school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's cool. Um, one other thing I'll point out about Lars's drumming is that he does a lot of that thrash D-beat, the buka yeah. buka of Battery and so many other songs, but in... On Ten Anger, he does it in all sorts of different contexts. Like, he'll play it, um, I think when they're building up to the chorus in of monster, he plays it without any guitar accompaniment, which is really interesting. Like, he never really plays that beat with the classic thrash guitar riff at the same yeah. time.
1: I, I was going to say that. I made a note of that where there's parts <clears throat> in this song and in other songs where it sounds almost misplaced. And yeah. it, when you listen to um, in some of the songs, um, including sort of uh, the chorus, I can, maybe it's what you, you can call the pre-chorus before it goes into some kind of monster. But he's like, we the people. The vocals are very melodic. And Lars, like you said, is playing a thrash beat behind it. And it's just sort of a weird juxtaposition between the two, where it seems misplaced and like one of these things does not belong.
0: Yeah, it's like the drums aren't playing along; they're very much puncturing the space of the guitars and the vocals, right? Interrupting almost.
1: Yeah, and like you said too, there are parts where the guitars just sort of rest, mm. and like the I feel like the the Drums, bass, vocals, like, they sort of take temporary control, which I think is uh, odd for a Metallica song also.
0: Definitely, and I do think that there's more audible bass guitar on this album, maybe, than any since Kill 'Em All, which is interesting. Like, Bob Rock is quite high in the mix, and I remember him saying in interviews that he wasn't taking a traditional uh, kind of thrash metal approach mm-hmm. because normally in thrash the bass player follows the guitar, but he was following Lars's kick drum, so that yeah. gives it that kind of steady anchoring groove under it.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. Different- I was gonna say there are songs, especially this one, some kind of monster, where you definitely have more of a groove, and you have that deep sounding bass, and uh, it's funny because. There are parts where they're so interlocked and the mix is weird at times that they sort of just sort of blend in with each other at parts.
0: Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the single remix of this version?
1: Um, again, not a big fan of it. I thought it was better than some of the other radio edits uh, that they had done. Yeah. Uh, they also had a remix where they sort of... Um, made a little bit more traditional sounding. It feels like they were trying to
0: mix it into something that could go onto the black album. Yeah. But because they have those like weird ingredients. It doesn't quite work. Yeah. Like they deaden the ring of the snare a bit, but it just sounds weird and flat to me.
1: Yeah. I agree. It just, it, I, and I just really did not like that. Like to me, like when they were always being asked, um, you know, when you remaster in Justice for All, are you going to turn the base up? And they're like, no, because that would take away from what we're trying to create in this moment. And I completely 100% agree with that. But on the flip side, they sort of, I'm not sure if it was their decision or if it was a management decision or how far, you know, they were involved in this. But it sort of goes against, you know, what they were trying to accomplish on the record.
0: Yeah, it kind of feels like a half a half committed attempt to get a song back on rock radio. Yeah. Cause I'm pretty sure that was the last single from the album and it came around, came out around the same time as the movie. Yeah. So I don't know if it made any waves. But well, it's
1: funny cause they had like a, some kind of monster soundtrack, which was really not much of a soundtrack. It was the, the album version, uh, the single version they might have even had a third version of it. Like, the remixed version might have been a third version. I'm not even positive. I'd have to go back and look. And then there was just live tracks from a random show. <laughs> it was more of, like, a, yeah. some kind of monster EP than it was, like, a soundtrack to the movie, where they sort of, like, pass it off as that.
0: Yeah, I remember nearly buying that CD so many times and just never doing it for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. It's not uh a, a integral part to... The catalog. (laughs) I did buy it because um, I was a Metallica nerd, but it's really no need to own it, (laughs) to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, that single remix is like an interesting window. What could have been, but probably should not have been. Speaking of track three.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which I think, like going back to what G said too, this sort of follows. To a certain extent, sort of the formula they established on the old records, where the third track was always more of like a groove song with, um, you know, whether it be For Whom the Bell Tolls or The Thing That Should Not Be. Even though these are all drastically different sounding songs, they sort of have those more mid-tempo, more groove-oriented elements.
0: And actually, some of the way that uh, Lars plays the toms on this song does remind me of The Thing That Should Not Be. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. yeah that's interesting
1: which also too i'm going to go as far to say that i think that song with you know it being downtuned, that song was very experimental for metallica at the time there's a lot of elements of the thing that should not be would which would would actually fit in on sane anger
0: very true like i'd love to hear it with Rerecorded with Saint Angus production, <laughs> it would be interesting. That's one of my. That's one of my craziest ideas. Like, I want to hear every classic metal album rerecorded with Saint production.
1: <laughs> even like by a, other like, bands.
0: And, uh, maybe. Do you like Peace Sounds?
1: But who's buying? <laughs> yeah. Raid in Blood with all the tones. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think it would be fascinating.
1: Yeah. It, I would listen. I mean. It would definitely be an interesting listen. I I also got to mention, you know, you had mentioned before the ominous I'm in Us part, which is another weird melodic thing. It's like sort of like drones. Ominous I'm in Us. Uh, It's like almost like a droney chant of sorts. It's sort of unique to uh, a Metallica song.
0: And it sounds like Kirk is doing some backing vocals there too. Yeah. I think. I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: And I have to mention, I remember when I heard this album for the first time and heard some kind of monster for the first time, the little guitar part then do 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 Oh, yeah. Like, what the, the fuck is end. that? I remember listening to it and being like, what the fuck is that? It's just like, you know, a little oddball, <clears throat> um, almost like, almost borderline old school, like, Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, NES 8-bit <laughs> effect
0: <laughs> I'm sure that came out of the way they cut and pasted those songs together yeah right seems like a little tail end of something that um, Bob and Lars like Pro Tools you know cut and paste onto the very end yeah because they need an end you know? <laughs> cool, though.
1: I, I like it I like it I'm not saying it as a criticism but just I remember listening to it for the first time and being like oh that's like really weird <laughs> Cause you just expect it to be like... You just expect it to be... <laughs> but then it goes... <laughs> does, that qualify, <laughs> does
0: that qualify as a guitar solo?
1: Whew, technically, <laughs> it is a solo guitar.
0: <laughs> Maybe between that and the intro, lead, some kind of monster actually has two guitar solos. So, That's uh, true.
1: You're welcome. It'll be the... I mean, the the most simplistic solos in the catalog, but hey, solos nonetheless.
0: It actually sounds like Kirk could be doing like a guitar tapping thing, so...
1: Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Let's move on to track four, Dirty Window. <laughs> um... I have no problems with this song, but I... Uh, to, if, if I have to rank the songs on this album, this would be on the lower end uh, for me in terms of songs. Uh, unlike the, in terms of enjoyment, um, I would, when I go back to this record, this definitely gets one of the least amount of plays on the record.
0: Hmm. I think it's actually grown on me. Uh, hmm. I think of it almost in like a hardcore punk context. Interesting. Uh, Metallica have covered the band Discharge before, they were like a pretty formative British hardcore punk band, um, Free Speech for the Dumb, and so on, and this to me feels like a little bit of Discharge filtered through Motorhead, and Hmm. like, even Queens of the Stone Age, it's like a bluesy, groovy, uh, garagey punk rock song to me. Interesting. And um, like especially the opening snare, to me that's like, Maybe my favorite snare moment on the album, just because it's so disruptive. Oh, it, it just it, like cuts the shit on.
1: It really is. For people who criticize the snare sound, this is the song for you. It really is. Like when this song starts, the snare is very jarring upon first listen.
0: Yeah, but I always say that it's musical too because the snare seems to be tuned in a way that the harmonics a ringing out in the key of the guitars. Yeah. So it's almost like it's adding information.
1: This is another example too where you know they have that sudden change over to like the clean vocal part and again not a lush section you know to use no. that term again but he goes I'm judging, a- I'm and I'm executioner too.
0: One thing that Lars does there is he plays Some like almost marching snare rhythms using only his sticks, like the rims of his snare, which is something I've never heard him do since or before. Yeah,
1: I I, I was gonna reference that there's a very unique uh, use of percussion in that part that is unfamiliar to Metallica. Yeah. Yeah. And I I gotta say though, (laughs) one part of this song that has always driven me crazy. Do you want to take a guess as to what it is? Projector! No!
0: Tjector. No. no? No, not
1: that part. The- <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like a Joker laugh.
1: Right?
0: Cause this, this whole song is about psychosis. Um, he's saying, I see my reflection in the window. He's like pointing the finger. He's playing judge and jury and executioner. But I feel like he's also the one being judged. Mm-hmm. Like, you never really know what perspective James is singing from. So, to me, it almost feels like a dissociative, like psychotic break. He's become all of them. And so, the only hmm. response is to, like, laugh like a madman.
1: Interesting. I've always actually sort of listened to this track and wondered if that laugh was intentional in a way like you described it, or if it was more of like, a weird, impulsive thing that he did in studio that they just sort of kept to keep, like, the sort of more loose garage feel to the record.
0: I feel like it's too weird a laugh to be, like, a kind of in-the-move. moment. is <laughs> a weird play, laugh.
1: You know? It's sort of higher-pitched. Like you said, it's sort of more Joker than
0: yeah.
1: Hatfield. And it's not like that... Um, it's not like the menacing demonic laugh at the end of Nestor Puppets
0: <laughs> no not at all in a way it serves a similar purpose I guess yeah I mean in the context of the lyrics yeah think about it
1: well you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna have to go back to this track for the thousandth time and I'm sure now that we've had this conversation the, the, this is what I like about uh, Metallica, especially in this album I can go back to this record and get new things out of it still And hear new things or hear things in a different way.
0: Yeah, um, it's never a dull moment, right? No. And also, um, uh, this is track four, and looking at Ride, Puppets, Justice, track four was traditionally a ballad that would open with clean guitar, Mm -hmm. a slower tempo song. And Dirty Window is not that at all. So that's the moment when you know it's going to be a clean break from the past.
1: Yeah. And and I would. I was going to make that point, too, where this is where it just completely separates from that formula. But it's a formula they would go back to on um, Death Magnetic and stuff. It's sort of like their blueprint since Ride the Lightning in a lot of ways. Even the Black Album that was less uh, of a thrash record you know, has The Unforgiven, at track four. Yeah, true. And uh, so, yeah, definitely just a break from Metallica tradition with this track. And then it makes you want, which is exciting when you're first listening to the sound because it makes you wonder where's this record going to go next? I thought I had it figured out. Now, where's it going to go next? And if you guessed a song where James Hatfield semi sarcastically mock sings a parental figure in the bridge of it, if you guessed that, then you guessed correctly. But that would. If you guess that, then you must be like a if you John- the second coming of somebody really special. You must be
0: Jonathan Davis.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I wrote down on my notes for this song. I think one of the most polarizing songs on the album.
0: Same. I think... Yeah, maybe the most polarizing because it's so, it's so long too. Yeah. Although I have learned to love it, like with every other song here.
2: But
1: yeah, but what's funny is I do not know anybody, but hardcore Metallica fans included, that are like this song's okay. I feel like Metallica fans really love this song because of its uniqueness or because of the subject matter being something that they could relate to or they're just like fuck that song i hate it it's very yeah, fast it's very few people in the in the middle it's it, it, this this song is one of those that like, you know has people on extremes like i said it's one of those i it, it's probably the most polarizing song on the album
0: yeah and in some ways it's unique Because um, on this song, the band's tuned down to A-flat, I think, which is very strange, Mm -hmm. especially when they're playing six-string guitars. Um, It's almost like sludge metal territory. Yeah. Very, very loose strings. Very bassy.
1: And another example in... Well, two things that we sort of mentioned before. This is another example where the drum beat is altering the riff as it goes. And you sort of again sort of starts off uh more thrash and then by the time the vocals enter more groove oriented and then when you get to the chorus another weird juxtaposition of, of between the drum beat and the vocal melody.
0: Yeah, there's very aggressive drums and the swirling cymbals and James singing in a very childlike yeah. fashion, right?
1: I'm okay, just Meanwhile, Lars is just banging on the, banging out a thrash beat behind him, more or less, and
2: because
1: yes. I remember hearing this song, and then I, when I actually heard this song for the first time, um, I immediately loved it, and but I remember thinking like, this sounds really fucking weird, and when the album ended for the first time. Uh, there were a few songs that I went back to to listen to again before I reheard the whole album from start to finish, and I remember this being one of those songs because it. I was like, it, it took me a, a few listens to truly wrap my head around what was going on because there's so many weird things, whether it's the juxtaposition in the chorus or the bridge, which I referenced before, where. James goes, ooh, what a good boy you are, which is, I think, the part where the naysayer is always like, oh, yeah, fuck this song. <laughs> oh, I know,
0: right? <laughs> I'm always interested Um, I think they have performed Invisible Kid live a couple of times, and I'm always like, James, the bridge is coming up. Are you going to commit to this part fully or not? And he kind of never does. It's almost too like embarrassing to to really do the way he did on the album that falsetto right
2: yeah
0: i don't mean embarrassing like artistically a little bit but it's like opening up in a way that's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. you're playing like your worst childhood
1: fear i feel like too when you're when they're playing live and they're playing songs from their whole catalog there is a certain mission in mind, which is put on a great show, hope that the song does not fall apart, and just like, especially nowadays where they're kind of more in the um, digging back into the older stuff, and the newer stuff is more closely aligned with the older stuff. Like, it's a very much like old school metal experience. And I think the St. Anger songs is just such. A would feel weird being thrown into a lot of the set lists. Not that, not that because they're not heavy or not fast, it's just such a unique, um, emotional purge. But I feel like to perform it adequately from the band perspective, like they would almost have to get in a different state of mind,
0: exactly. Like, I always think of this album as. An internal space. It's almost like mixed for headphones, you know. Yeah. And um, it's, it doesn't feel right to me without that specific production. Like I remember the band um, playing a couple of songs like on TV mm. after the album came out. But they'd gone back to their traditional live setup and like Lars's signature drum sound. Yeah. Um, it didn't. It didn't feel quite right to me.
1: And they even went so far, you know, to go back to the previous track for a moment, I know, like, uh, some of the times when they played Dirty Window live, they would add in, like, a guitar solo. And... it, made sense. it yeah. I think it makes sense in the live setting. But, again, it sort of takes it out of um, the attention of the album, which I also get, like, going back to my first point, which was, is they're just so separate from a lot of their other catalog and i think this yeah the album is well and i think that sorry to interrupt i I think i was just gonna say i think that's part of the reason why we don't get a lot of load and reload stuff necessarily too because right now like on the current tours like i said they're going for more old school and it'd be hard to throw in like a mama said in there and, and, and just like it would be hard to throw in invisible kid
0: Exactly,
1: yeah. Now, I do think this song is just a perfect example of um, purging, which is a word I kept using in episode 9 and a word I referenced before in this track-by-track. Track. But this is really, I think, one of a couple songs of this album that really just sees James Hetfield strip everything down. It strips everything away. in lyrically and vocally, which goes back to your point where it might be even a little bit embarrassing for him. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like he's purging for himself more than for the listener, right? Yeah. It's almost like once he got it out of his system, he didn't need to or didn't want to uh, return to it just because it is so confronting. Yeah, it reminds you of the person you used to be.
1: Right. And I think, no. I think too. Going back to the point I made in Saint Anger, or the point we made in Saint Anger, we're talking about Cliff and Jason, and sort of how there's a lot of anger that they did not deal with, and that was sort of them trying to get it out in a healthy way. I think Invincible Kid sort of this is um, stuff from the, his childhood that James never dealt with, at least as directly. There were songs like The Unforgiven. And, you know, there were songs like Dyer's Eve, but he never really did it on, uh, on this emotional of a level, I, I think. True.
0: Yeah. And it feels honest to me. Yeah. I will point out two things musically. One is that in the breakdown, that Falsetto part, um, mm. Lars does an interesting thing where whenever the band plays a breakdown on Senanga he'll do it, like, without hitting the cymbals mm-hmm. and normally in a metal breakdown you're hitting the cymbals to keep time to kind of give it a sort of groove but yeah. Lars is just going dun 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 yeah and it almost feels like I've described it as like a drunken Godzilla trying to get up <laughs> It's like stumbling around very heavy um almost wounded yeah so I think it, I think it really fits the lyrics and the other thing is that um the song ends on a really strange, almost noise rock riff that duh, 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 where mm. you can't even make out what note the guitar's playing. Yeah. It's really interesting.
1: I think it's cool. It is interesting. I, like I said, that was one of the, before I went back to listen to the sound from start to finish for the second time when I first bought it, this was one of, I would say, three songs that I immediately went back to listen to. So this album, st- this is a song that stood out to me um. from uh, the beginning and then when I started hearing all the h- Invincible Kid hate I was like, what? And I was like, I mean, I kind of get it but <laughs> I was, at the same time I was like Ugh. I stand by I think
0: the point, at, the point at which I learned to love Invisible Kid was the point where I kind of got the whole album as a collective for the first time like once that song stopped baffling me um, the rest of the album like thematically opened up.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Now, I know you're excited for this next song. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, talking about track six, My World. This is a song that was a real grow for me. When I first heard St. Anger, this was not a standout track to me. Um, I thought it. Same. I thought it went in some interesting directions, but the whole first, the whole chorus was just sort of generic to me when I first listened to it. And I feel like I, it, I feel like it was um, uh, a leftover reload song put through a Saint Anger filter. And then when I, I and then when I sort of revisited the album and Revisited the song I liked it more and more and more especially because it goes into those different directions There's a lot yeah, like the- a lot of wacky twists and turns as Lars would say
0: mm. Yeah, the lyrics are very petulant Not childlike, but very immature and adolescent, but I think the way they resolve in the chorus is interesting like it goes from the verses uh, motherfucker motherfuckers got in my way to the, it's my world of the chorus. But then you have all those James backing vocals, like swirling around in your head. So it's not as, yeah, you're right. It's not as straightforward as you would think.
1: Yeah. It, it starts off in a way where, like I said, you think this is almost going to be like a reload song. Like it's my world now. Like I could put that right next to like a slither or something on reload. But then it goes into uh, the It Only Rains on Me section. Yeah. Which is a really, I think to this day, still like a really unique part in the Metallica catalog because of how um, the vocals are layered and sort of built without really building that specific section, if that makes sense. Also
0: interesting to think that um, James has covered Only Happy When It Rains by Garbage live before, like at those Bridge School benefits. Yes. So, I yeah, I guess that phrase up once.
1: I had that same thought actually when I was uh, yeah. taking my notes and I was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, that was the inspiration behind a line like that. I also wonder too, like, if when you take a line like that, It only rains on me. It's a cliche line in some ways. It's almost like emo in a way. Uh, Especially coming from James Heffield. You know, like, oh man. But uh, it's done in a way where the way it's presented, the way it's performed, to me it does not come across that way. Like, there's a lot of... um, emotion the way it's sung
0: yeah it's like a it's kind of blackly comedic almost he's almost like right right
1: which also you know is like something that in the lord reload era especially he really got into lyrically sort of like this dark sarcasm like if you hear a song like um prince charming off reload you know he's sort of going through all these evil things that he manifests but it's lyrics like hey ma hey ma look it's me like it's sort of goofy and tongue in cheek or poor twisted me on um load you know like it's it's just all very like sarcastic in a way um and i sort of feel yeah, like, it's like a, yeah go ahead
0: it's like a brief playful respite almost in between all this darkness and pummeling right
1: And then it goes into another very unique section which you know i feel like it's a section i've heard from a lot of metal bands in a sense in in terms of vocal delivery but not from metallica where he sort of has like almost like a whisper and then just spaz out screaming
0: not only do i not know the answer
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's cathartic just to yell. Right? Yeah,
1: I know and I this was people people might disagree with me, but I I always thought this out of a lot of the Saint Anger songs, this would be a great live song.
0: You're right. Yeah, it would be fun.
1: Like the 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 chorus, like it's my world. It's very singable. You have like the. The how fun would it be to just scream that part at the end you know like it, it, I just think it would be a really fun live song that I'm not sure that they've, they've ever performed live
0: I'm about to look it up uh, my, they have
1: not of I'm, no. I'm willing to bet that a lot of these songs of the sound they've not performed live yeah uh, but that's the best part about Metallica.com is that what you on right now by chance,
0: well, I went to Sun FM, but yeah,
1: they have, yeah, yeah, they have like all the live stats, you know. But um... yeah, but yeah this was a grow. Now I know there was uh, something you you were excited to talk about with this song. I say this laughing lot because you were actually excited, <laughs> and I was excited to hear what you had to say. You wanted to talk about the amazing world of polyrhythm. Woo!
0: I will try to explain, and uh, you, being a music teacher yourself, uh, can elaborate a little bit. But essentially, a polyrhythm is when um, a band is playing in two time signatures at once. Uh, so the standard, uh, mo- you know, most music is written in four four. So one two three four one two three four, that kind of grouping, right? Um, MyBot does something a little different. It's in that bridge section where the guitar's going that's actually in 6-4, I believe. And while Lars is playing kind of more standard 4-4 part under that, he's going which has this weird effect of making the song feel like it's kind of going around in a circle. Like um, I think it takes Lars. Lars plays like three measures of his beat versus the band playing two of theirs. If I have a maths correct. Yeah. So yeah, it's just this odd little thing. It reminds me a little bit of of one actually in the guitar harmony bit, the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. where um the band also shifts from like a six four. To a four-four once that machine gun part starts.
1: Yeah. Now,
0: so that's interesting. To me. Like it's, be- especially because you think of polyrhythms as usually like quite a technical thing. You know, bands like Meshuggah mm-hmm. uh, do it all the time. But here, Metallica pull it off in a way that's like actually pretty simple. Like you can listen to the song and like not even notice that it's there.
1: Yeah. Now I wonder too, if this was. You know, with when we talk about all these, you know, vocal melodies that sort of juxtapose over the drum beats or a part like this, I wonder how much of these parts were written together, and because the album was constructed through so much cutting and pacing of Pro Tools, I wonder how many separate jams sessions that they put together to kind of create these like weird little elements. So for example, like I wonder if uh you know, when they were writing these parts for some kind of monster, or writing the polyrhythm part for my world, did they rehearse it and write it like this? Or was it more like let's cut this thrash beat that Lars is playing in this one song and paste it over this vocal melody, it sounds weird and it works, and they sort of kind of did the songwriting through that form. Like I wonder how much of it was intentional and how much of it was cut together in the songwriting process
0: yeah you're right because when the band recorded themselves playing the album the whole way through for the evening that comes with the album that was their first time playing the song start to finish so they actually had to relearn everything
1: yeah yeah and and i just have a feeling (laughs) i'll probably like that they were probably like did we write this?
0: <laughs> yeah, was this like a justice leftover or something?
1: <laughs> but I, I, I really like that song, and like I said, that was a big grower for me. And that was like a throwaway track the first time I listened to it, and now I, I think it's one of the highlights. So, yeah, agreed. Hmm. Shoot me again.
0: Here's the wrestling reference. Okay, so um, the main riff of "Shoot Me Again" goes dun 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 which is one note off the Dudley Boys theme in the WWE. It goes dun 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 There you go. That's my quota, Phil.
1: Did you? You said you listened to the last episode about Placid.
0: I did, yeah, so we're keeping it a thing.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's now a requirement, so thank you for continuing. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who may not have listened, um, again, not sure why you're not listening to all the episodes, but uh, any guess I have on here, I'm now going to require to make uh, a Metallica Wrestling reference of some sort. So thank you, Richard, for providing the first and providing the latest yes. In what promises to be a long series of Metallica wrestling references.
0: Indeed. I hope Jim Johnson doesn't sue.
1: (laughs) I think Metallica will sue me first. Oh god. Yeah. Um That's okay though. I'm not I'm a small little I'm a small little thing. I'm still young in this podcast world.
0: Also, we're like seventeen years late, but yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, So shoot me again. To me, this is uh, when I was re-listening to this, and I was taking notes. um, A song that popped to my mind that I feel like is uh, sort of the sequel to this song is uh, "Broken Beaten Scarred" on Death Magnetic. And the reason why I feel like, and and I say that from a lyrical standpoint, where I, I feel like shoot me again, you know, this is them going through Napster. This is the, uh, they saw the feature, they knew people would hate this album. <laughs> so this is basically them dealing with all the naysayers, all the hate that they've been experiencing, going, come on, bring it. We're, we can tell you, just keep on sh- uh, firing the shots. Like, we will, we got this. Where, and then Broken Beat the Scarred sort of, the. Uh, um, the sequel where they're, it's the after effects, you know? What don't kill us make us more strong, you know? Where it's sort of this is them going through the battle, egging people on, probably scar sort of their victorious reflection on their battle.
0: Yeah, I think Broken and Guard feels a little bit more traditionally empowering in a metal way. Like, maybe that's the arrangement. Shoot Me Again is like I don't know. It's a bit more grim, a bit
1: more
0: conflicted.
1: But I think. I, think. I agree. But I, I think that's the theme of both those albums, are, right? Where Death Magnetic uh, is the return to the traditional Metallica blueprint, the traditional Metallica sound in a lot of ways. Uh, basically, what people thought Saint Anger was going to be, I think, when they bought it, or before they heard that- the lead single. And then. Uh, but yeah, this is another little funky, unique song in the catalog. And I really like the. the. I'll call it the broken. Uh, the the broken. <laughs> I have uh, broken me scar scarred my mind. The spoken. The spoken word sections, which to me, uh, where he's just. He doesn't really sing, it's just sort of like, shoot me again. You know, like, come on, shoot me again. It's sort of like half spoken, half sung. And to me, that's just. Uh, very much in his uh, to me that's James Hathaway referencing his uh, love of outlaw country
0: yeah it's a like cowboy thing right
1: yeah I also hear a little bit
0: of Alison in Chains in the way he sings the verses hmm. interesting yeah I won't go away right oh, you can imagine yeah, yeah. Jerry Cantrell oh, totally. singing underneath it
1: totally hmm. that's a good point so this is basically Alice in Chains meets uh, Whale and Jennings. But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it makes sense. It does. Um, and it has the... I remember listening to this, again, this song for the first time, and the bridge, the... I feel like the first time I heard this, the bridge sounded like very rushed. Uh, Wait to sleeping giant, mm. wake the beast. You know, like it's uh, like Hetfield's almost like rapping his way through a bunch of words um, in a short amount of time, but it fits with the music.
0: It does. That's a very Some Kind of Monster-like section. Yes. Almost like a leftover song. Yeah. yeah. I think Shoot Me Again may be like the, one of the most traditionally likable songs on this album. Like I see it referenced a lot by people who aren't fans of everything
1: else interesting yeah i could see that though i mean there it's it's definitely a catchy song and i feel like it yeah. you know you could argue that these songs have catchy parts but it's not they're not catchy in the sense of like in it just saying or even a master of poppers where you want to go master master like it, they're not very singable A uh uh, uh, uh Compared to other Metallica tracks, you know, and but Shoot Me again definitely has more of that catchiness to it.
0: But it's also quite severe at the same time that it's full of those stop starts. Yeah,
1: sweet amber. This is... Alright, um, th- I, I, I take it back. When I went back and listened to the few select songs, there was actually four select songs. And this was one of them. And I think this is one of the more traditional songs on the album.
0: Yeah, I think this might be, on a musical level, maybe my least favorite song on the album. Just because it is a little bit more conventional. I find myself uh, a bit more attached to the lyrics I think.
1: Yeah. It, well, I think to be honest with you, I think when I first heard this album, I was drawn back to this song because it was a little bit more conventional. But what I've noticed 15 years later is that I, if I go back and listen to St. Anger, I generally am not going back to listen to this song. Like I, sure. I liked this song a lot more uh, when the album first came out. Not that it's, I've, Dislike the song less now. I guess because it is more conventional though, I get more out of it in replay value.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um, Intro to the song is Interesting, right? That very bluesy clean guitar. Um, Yeah, I don't know if Metallica have ever done that before, right? No, they not even on Load.
1: No, I was gonna say they, you know, obviously got more blues oriented in those albums which are sort of like their homage to like a lot of 70s hard rock but they never really went for being as stripped down as that intro and the tone of the guitar reminded me a lot of the band Down true yeah yeah Like, it, which I know Pepper Keenan is you know really good friends and been an influence on Hetfield so and I know Hatfield was like a really big fan of uh, the first Down album stuff as was I And when I heard that, I remember instantly thinking, like, this reminds me of a Down song, like, the way it starts.
0: Sure. Didn't um, Corrosion of Conformity's bassist audition for Metallica?
1: Yeah. Well, well, there... So, it's interesting. He was... Pepper Keenan is the singer of Corrosion of Conformity. And he either plays guitar or bass in the band, I'm not sure. But he... But he's the vocalist. And then he was the guitarist in Down. And then he auditioned for bass when they were having all the auditions after Jason.
0: Yeah, which you see in Some Kind of Monster, right? Yeah, it's like
1: him, um, Twiggy from Marilyn Manson. It's a, it's a pretty interesting uh, ca- uh, cast of characters that they have come in.
0: Yeah. Um, I usually think of the blues and metal as being quite separate um to me there's not a lot of metal bands who really get the essence of the blues but yeah you're right like down is one black sabbath um metallica like really playing up those elements on Anger is i think a big part of what makes it so unique
1: yeah and i think i mean the you you mentioned you get the most out of the lyrics and I remember one part of some kind of monster movie in particular where they're doing this is probably one of the more uh, this definitely one of the more comedic parts where they're doing that ad for radio and they're you know just saying like why the hell do we have to do this like like you don't see Bono doing this shit and they're and Hatfield goes oh it's like wash your back so you won't stab mine I gotta do this good thing for you so you don't betray us.
0: Yeah. That moment almost feels like a state for the cameras. Right? Yeah. It almost feels like they kinda of happened in real life and then they like re like shot it.
1: Yeah, yeah. For the crew. It's that's it's a pretty funny part though. And they have uh, but that line becomes the opening line of Sweet Amber, which I mean it's hard to ignore the alcohol reference and the references to rehab and sobriety that are in those lyrics, I think.
2: Yeah,
0: it's, um, it is interesting that these lyrics, I find, clearly it is a metaphor for addiction and alcohol as well, but they're kind of a little bit more open to interpretation too. Like, I'm reading the bridge, she holds the pen that spells the end, she traces me and draws me in. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not totally sure what that is. Like, maybe it's James singing about like how alcohol is like a muse or like a crutch for his creativity or something, right. like as a writer. But yeah, it's never... I've never like totally resolved it.
1: Or even uh, uh, like, chase the rabbit, fetch the stick, she rolls me yeah, over sure. till I'm sick. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it, You assume that the she in the song is maybe... You know, humanizing the alcohol, right? It's his like woman in the song, maybe. But it's it's one of those songs that's definitely open to interpretation. And I think though this is like one of going as much as I like the lyrics, they're a little bit more conventional in the way that Hetfield typically writes. Like I would not be surprised if this was one of the rare songs of the album that was solely pinned by Hetfield or primarily pinned by him.
0: Yeah, you're right, because the images feel, like, precise to be, like, a group thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then one of the other songs that really stood out to me, I I would rank this as one of the most underrated songs in the whole Metallica catalog is The Unnamed Feeling.
0: Yeah, agreed. Big
1: fan. There's just so much going on, where the, in some ways it's a little bit more traditional, but in some ways it takes the band in entirely new directions. It's a very interesting listen.
0: I think it's the only song on the album with like a traditional, almost poppy vocal melody, right? Because
2: yeah.
0: a lot of the other melodies are kind of shouted or sung. And here you have James actually, like, singing in the verses, probably, you know. Been here before, couldn't say I liked it. Yeah. And actually getting those melodies in. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like, it's in such a strange context. Like, it could have been written for the Black Album, but um, with the weird, like, swirling cymbals around you mm-hmm. and the growling guitars, like, it's just been off.
1: Yeah, and... In- the bridge. I remember hearing the bridge and the vocal deliver, uh, the vocal delivery there. Um, Get the fuck out of my head! Like it's just such a unique uh, performance for Hatfield.
0: Yeah, very strange. Uh, that's one where I always wonder what a guitar solo would have done in that place. Like it would have been maybe more conventional maybe more, like, pleasant, mm-hmm. but like, is that just what the song's about? Right. You know?
1: Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I feel like, and they sort of discussed this in some kind of monster movie, right, where I feel like, if you're doing no good... I, I like to think that it was... It'd be a song-by-song song basis, you know? If a song calls for it, great. If a song does not call for it, great. But if you have a band, like Metallica, where really the guitar solo is part of their formula part of their signature sound if you're doing something completely out of left fields like this album to me it makes sense to just do away with it all together sort of like an all or nothing type thing
0: yeah absolutely
1: so i have like a a really oh this was another song before i get to that this was another the song i was talking about where it has another reference to the word frantic like this is one of those emotions frantic um anger like kind of like an empty lonely feeling like these are the themes that keep on coming up throughout this album right and it's it, it's even though i mean it's a word that many people use for it to be such like a defining song of this album opening track um one of the first couple singles off it like for you to use that word in the verse to me is intentional
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm frantic in your soothing arms. Yeah. I cannot sleep in this standfield filled world. Right. That sleep reference, you know, Enter Sandman, I think this, uh, I think the Unlead Feelings intro reminds me a little bit of Enter Sandman, the way it builds from a clean guitar mm-hmm. into toms to the cymbal accents and then into that main riff which is kind of a variation on the clean riff, right? Yeah,
1: I can see that for sure. Uh, there's <laughs> there's a uh, a funny story that goes with the song for me. So, um, and, and this is to me, you know, you said that you're a Billboard editor called this album like the weirdest album that radio was ever forced to play. And I, it,
0: yeah, it's a title track, I think. Yeah. This is like just
1: uh, to me, this is like a good example of that where. Vitalik was in this weird position where they had this really weird album, and they were still a mainstream rock band doing mainstream rock band things. Um, so there was uh, they were performing on live on New Year's Eve.
0: Yes, I was just thinking about <laughs> that. <this.
1: laughs> so I had this memory of them performing this song. On new Year's Eve. So that's weird enough because this is <laughs> one of the most depressing songs you could hear on New Year's Eve. Like if I was ringing in the New Year by myself, I like this song would drive me to do horrible things to myself. <laughs> Imagine being at home like by yourself drinking a bottle of your favorite alcohol and you're just like oh this is how my New Year's starting. Fuck this. But at least I have this happy music. Cheer me up. Oh, I like the talk, Let's get... Po- then you just hear this song and you're just like, oh, I hate my life. <laughs>
0: Should we describe how the video plays out? Because it's even stranger yes. when you go back and watch yes, it. Yes, I, and I, so- I have
1: notes on this because I did go back and watch it this morning. And it's hilarious. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's... We we've, I keep on saying the word juxtaposition, right? This is the ultimate juxtaposition. Um,
0: because, firstly, it's on Dick Clark's Rockin' New
1: Year's Eve, right? Right. I think. I, I believe so. Whichever one is hosted by Ryan Seacrest, which I think is Dick Clark.
0: Yeah. So, very, very mainstream. And then you click on the video and it's like, I'm pretty sure it's like Paris Hilton <laughs>
2: <Yes>. and Nicole <laughs> <Yes>. Mitchell. <mainstream. laughs>
0: something (laughs) (laughs) they're like in front of the stage and they're like and now and now here's Metallica so
1: it's so funny because I have uh, I I wrote my notes um, because I was like I gotta find that video on YouTube because I remember watching it live (laughs) so Ryan Seacrest is like he's like they've sold you know 9 million hours worldwide Metallica and it goes now, Metallica, to their credit, had to do it slightly different, had to do it their own way. So instead of being live in studio with everybody else, they were performing an actual concert in, like, a small club um, nearby, so they filmed the... They, like, basically streamed the, their song from their actual concert. So it's like, at least it was in front of, like, you know, dancing TV plants. It was, like, a, like an American band said, at least it was in front of, like, their own fans. But among their own fans, like you said, Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, and they introduce Metallica. So you have Ryan Seacrest, then Nicole Richie and Paris Hilton. They introduce Metallica, and they you just hear... They go into an unnamed feeling. And then what is really... <laughs> the funniest part. So they they're sort of playing like again the single version of it, and even the single version is cut short on TV. Like they just sort of cut away from it after about four minutes. Because I think even the single version is like over five minutes long, which is too long for I think TV.
0: They, I, <laughs> I think they play even less. I feel like they play. Like, not even half, but like a third of the song. <laughs> like, they don't even get to the bridge. Because it's like TV, so it's cut short. And then, like, after three minutes, they cut to commercial. So,
1: but this, this is the funniest part. So then they're playing the song. And literally, they just cut away from the song. The band still, still at their concert playing the damn song. TV cuts away. And it goes immediately, without skipping a beat, to these two women. I don't even know who they were. But there are words like these two. Uh, you know, very 2003 looking attractive woman. <laughs> they go, We're just a couple girls looking for some trouble. <laughs> so think of it. It's literally this quick of an edit. I i forget what part of the song it cuts off from, but I'll just say, I'll just make that part up. But the cut is true to life. Um, duh, duh, duh. We we're just a couple girls looking for some trouble. Oh, my
0: God. The state of 2003.
1: <laughs> in and I was like, this is just such a perfect example of what your editor was talking about on another level, because you know, still, you know, this w- album was considered uh, a flaw by Metallica Stain. still sold millions of albums, still won Grammy awards, still... Um, debuted at number one the Billboard charts. They're still the biggest metal band in the world. They're still, you know, this is a time when mainstream rock was still sort of a thing on FM radio and on um, MTV and, like, the early 2000s was sort of right before it all died out on those various platforms. So they're still doing their thing, and it's just so funny that this is the album and the song that they are pushing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you just, like, can't sand down those rough edges, right? Yeah. Like, you could imagine Limp Bizkit or, like, Linkin Park playing in that kind of setting, but Metallica, who are, like, a generation older as well. Right. So, like, they're not a youth... I mean, they're still a popular band, but they're not, like,
1: topical youth culture at that point. So,
0: yeah, yeah even weirder.
1: I don't know. It, it, it'd be one thing, I guess, too. Like, if they were like, all right, Metallica, come on. Like, you're a big name but we need you to perform Inter-Salmon. Everybody knows that song. No, totally. no, we're going to re- play our new depressing single off our weird album that not even some of our hardcore fans like. <laughs> One thing I would compare it to is like
0: uh, when Slayer played Raining Blood on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that kind of made sense because clearly like someone on the show was a fan and they like presented it in a way that like made sense right. but the crowd was appreciative right. so i don't know what that says like maybe like every kind of legacy metal band gets respect at some point i don't well, know i
1: think it's you know everybody you know when rain and blood came out for example when Kill 'Em all came out when you know all these bands were young and starting out they were mm. the dangerous bands they were the extreme metal bands they were underground then they left the underground but they were still sort of these, like, you know, bands that parents were afraid of. But now those kids are parents themselves. Exactly. So it's just, it, it's like any generation, you know, where it's like the, you know, the, it was Led Zeppelin, the Beatles before, it was Elvis Presley before that, you keep on going back and back and back, you know? So now everything...
0: Jazz and blues. Yeah.
1: So now every so now we're at a point now where those metal bands are starting to get that recognition and especially uh, you know Slayer in some ways is still with their imagery and their lyrical themes they're still someone on like the uh they're weird band because in some ways they're still sort of like on the outside but everybody knows the band that Slayer. Thing. Everybody yells Slayer at concerts obnoxiously, like they yell Freebird. Everybody knows the Slayer logo. You know, it's yeah. just sort of like one of those weird outside things that have now become a part of overall pop culture. Sort of like the uh, the Crimson Ghost logo of the Misfits. Like this, that's just sort of an iconic part of pop sure. culture now. Yeah, and it's weird how that happens because in, in some ways. It's still an outside thing. And I'm sure that there are people who have never heard a Misfit song in their entire life, have no clue who Glenn Danzig is, who know that skull, that recognize that skull.
0: Yeah, because it's one thing to wear that on a t shirt, but like to be a diehard fan is still a bit like. It's not underground, but not like totally conventional, you know?
1: Right. It's still a bit counterculture. And I think there's, you know, it goes into acceptance of like, w- when you have mainstream sh- uh, stores like Hot Topics in every mall in America, you know, that's an ex- uh, a mainstream acceptance of what was, what was once a culture culture, you know? And, um, mm. you know, it, it still is in some ways because you're not, you know, for people who don't want to, you know, when I was in high school, middle school, you know, I could go to the mall and buy you know, metal t-shirts or to the record store and buy metal t-shirts and i viewed yeah. myself as different from the people wearing abercrombie and fitch yeah absolutely. You know, like i was still like the counterculture but in actuality i was part of a mainstream culture that was just different so,
0: yeah that's true and also like those abercrombie wearing dudes and Women might also have gone to Metallica concerts. And
1: now they're wearing Metallica t-shirts as fashion statements. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. But uh, I had to share that story because I I was like, I got to track down this video and see if it's as weird as I remember it. And it was weirder.
2: (laughs) It
0: really is. Yeah.
2: So
1: if you've not seen this, just go to YouTube, type in Unnamed Feeling New Year's, and it'll show up. It's not even the best performance of the song, but you're not watching it for the performance. You're watching it for the overall weirdness and package and hilarity. Yeah, the train (laughs) tracks. But we got two songs left. It's purifying.
0: Yeah, um, also one of the thrashier songs on the album, right? Yeah. All like full momentum, a uh, very fast tempo.
1: And it um, the first to me is sort of similar to parts of some kind of monster or um, the bridge of "Shoot Me Again," where the vocals fit into the song, but it also sound like a bit clunky, like a bit rushed at times. Like he's packing a lot of words into um, a short amount of time.
0: Yeah. I think of this song as, um, it's the moment on the album where, like, the protagonist's fate is sealed. Because before then, you have, like, moments of, um, they're looking for resolution, still searching for answers. It's not quite optimistic, but maybe they're not doomed. But by Purify, um, they're saying, you know, tear it down, strip the layers off, um, peeling back the skin. Uh, it's almost like there's no other ending in sight mm-hmm. by that point um i think of some of the imagery as like james is singing about skulls and skeletons it reminds me of i think it's the harvester of sorrow artwork that pusshead did just like the skull yeah. by itself to me it's like the horror of of like seeing yourself
1: and I'm you say this would have been a great pusshead t-shirt that they never did
0: yeah you're right one thing I just noticed looking at the lyrics um, in the first verse, James says "White Heat, White Light," which is the name of a Velvet Underground album. Mm-hmm. White Light, White Heat. Um, Lou Reed. So mm-hmm. maybe it foreshadowed that a little.
1: I don't know. <laughs> they they referenced the past and predicted their future. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like too, like one thing we've not really mentioned is. The imperfections in some of the performances, right? Like they kind of there are parts where it's sort of warts and all. And there's like there's a there's um, a chord played by the guitars in the game My World that I'm not sure I'm not sure if it's intentional or an accident, but it sounds like they're almost playing like a wrong chord in there. And to me, the vocal delivery in Purify, there's parts where it's just An imperfect performance where they didn't go try to go back and correct it. Where James's voice maybe like squeaks a little bit or is just you know a little off pitch.
0: Yeah, that's such a strange chorus, Purify. Yeah, it's like not, it's maybe the most dissonant chorus they've ever written. Yeah, right? It's kind of doing a tritone thing. Purify, Mm -hmm. purify. I don't even know what key that is, but.
1: It exists in the Purify key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in oh, the ending riff, too.
2: Yeah.
0: The ending riff uh, makes me think of like Black Sabbath almost. Yeah. Kind of playing in halftime.
1: It, it, it's a, one of those songs that's a good mix of. It, it, it's If you take old school Metallica and put it through the same anger filter.
0: Yeah, you're right, because if you played those riffs in a little bit, kill them all almost. Yeah. Not the chorus, but the rest of it, yeah, for sure. And anything else about Purify? I do wonder if this is like the most... Uh, con- if you played Purify for someone who'd never heard Metallica before, would that be like the most confronting song on this album?
1: Interesting. I think it'd be up there. I think actually the last track would be the most popular.
0: Yeah, I think it's just the chorus of Purify that's, like, so off to me. Maybe, like, more than any other section on the album.
1: All Within My Hands. Probably the song with the best staying power from the album. They've performed this recent years uh, acoustically. It's the name of their charity. Um, I think this is, along with Unnamed Feeling, one of the more underrated songs from their album or, or in their catalog. And I truly love this song.
0: Same, it might even be my favorite closing track on the Metallica album I mean they're all good but this one to me feels like the culmination not just of Senang, but in some ways of James Hetfield's whole life yeah to me like the overarching theme of Metallica is control and trying to come to grips with um if you look at James's upbringing as a Christian scientist and um his mother's battle with cancer and um, even being a rock star who, in theory, you know, has control and has all the power in the world but still can't deal with the problems within himself, I think all within my hands kind of just crystallizes that. Right.
1: To me, this song just has a little bit of everything. Where it has the... You know, it has the thrash parts, it has the sudden... Sw- I, I mentioned before, like, this album sort of doing... Um, having those, what I call the system of the down moments, where it sort of has this sudden switch to clean. And this song, I think, does it the best. Um, yeah. It has more of a groove during the, the chorus. It has super personal lyrics. It has odd dissonant moments it has just a complete vocal purge at the end like to me this song just has everything and while i would not say this is uh the best closing track in a metallic catalog it, it i could not rank this over um, a damage ink or a dire z but i think this is the mo- most I, I think more so than those songs when this album ends and you hear this song it's the most um what the fuck i'm exhausted song
0: yeah absolutely um i think right i think every individual section in this song is fascinating um you look at the the verse where again lars is playing those those crash symbols in a way that they're kind of swirling mm-hmm. around you he's playing a beat that's very stop and start as well it's like boom, boom, gun. Uh, and then you have, I think, James or Kirk doing that really atmospheric guitar lead, is, kind of floating, which is something I never really heard from. It is.
1: It either. is moments too where it seems, um, tying with what you're saying, where it seems like sort of to me, did they just like delete a part, uh, and when they were cutting and pasting your Pro Tools, because it sounds almost like, yeah, it's just. Inconsistent with where they have, um, uh, like just drums and bass, uh, adding in the guitar parts, like it's so start and stop in sections where it almost sounds random.
0: Yeah, it's not a naturalistic rhythm, although, uh, if you think about Metallica, like Justice Era, they were a lot of that then as well. True, so it was always they'd find ways to make that feel, uh, kind of organic. Yeah.
1: I think for me, when I first heard this song, um, I always loved at about the five minute mark after the second chorus where it sounds like they're uh, where they're basically fixing the input to their guitars, you know that <laughs> Oh
0: it is. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yes. Uh, I love that effect. Um, you know, kind of going back to this is our garage album, you know. And then it just goes into that bridge. It comes back to that final chorus, and then it there's the final moment is unlike anything you will hear in the Metallica catalog. It just has a bum bum wow. It's like that. The whole song literally just completely falls apart. Like they hit that. You have Hatfield going. Kill, 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 kill! Doing his best Tom Araya impression of just blood-curling screams of the word "kill" over and over again. Meanwhile, the guitars are hammer like that dissonant chord that just it, the song literally just falls apart. And it's just a complete I always I purge on both levels of like we're done.
0: Yeah, I've always compared this ending to the ending of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds where um, everyone's trapped inside the house and um, no one's speaking because they're so horrified and they go outside and they're surrounded by thousands and thousands of birds just screeching and they have, like have to go through it and it's like words have become meaningless we've gone from human to animal and that's what I think of that kill, kill, kill kill mm-hmm. section. It's like you know, fuck lyrics, you know, everything's falling apart. It's like a pure primal expression. And I get why some people find it kind of funny, but to me, it's like the only possible conclusion to this album. Yeah. Right?
1: I think, well, and I, I think there are um, parts where when James screams, because Scream is not, like, a typical metal scream where, because yeah. uh, that's not the intention. Where it's, so I think for some people it can be kind of funny sounding, um, because it's just not, like, when you hear a band like, uh, uh whether it's a Lamb of God or whether it's a Trivium or Killswitch Engage, like, Think of other bands that are so, starting to emerge around this time period. Like, it's not that traditional scream, it's not a obviously like a black death metal scream. Of uh, it, it's it's more and it's not trying to be any of those things. It's more, um, you know, going back to episode nine where we talked, you made the excellent comparison to classic Ono band where you know, John Lynn is just sort of playing uh, those screams. To me, it's more in line with that than with like a metal scream.
0: Agreed, because those metalcore bands had a very practiced screaming. You know, they had to learn how to do it in a way that would
1: also protect their voice. Mm.
0: But when Headfield does it here, it, it comes from like the gut,
1: and it's not
0: it feels like it hurts.
1: And it's not him trying to take the band into a different vocal di- like direction, like from this point forward. You know, like it's not like them trying to be uh, slipknot. He's not trying to be Corey Taylor. It's literally him just letting it out. The only way he knows how in that moment.
0: Yeah, and it kind of goes from high to low as well. Like, his voice breaking, but then he does the low one, kill, 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 which is kind of a bark. yeah.
1: And at the end, it, that's when it reminds me of uh, Tom Array a little bit where he just goes, but he really nails those screams, and he's like, kill, kill,
2: Kow, cow! Kow!
1: I, I could just yell oh, yeah, kill yeah. over and over again for the Rest of this podcast, to be honest with you, it is very liberating. Maybe that's how it should
0: be. <laughs> Although uh, the ending we have in mind for you is arguably much worse. So.
1: <laughs> I I'm really interested to hear what people have to say about the ending. It will it will be there shortly because this is the last track on the album. So <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: um, Any final words on "All Within My Hands" or on? uh Anger in general on this epic track-by-track breakdown, our sequel to episode nine?
0: I think I will tie it back to uh, the theme of grieving for Jason briefly. There's that lyric, um, love is control, I'll die if I let go.
2: Yeah.
0: And one of the main reasons that Jason left was specifically because he wanted to start... A side project mm-hmm. called Echo mm-hmm. Brain. And, um, there was a lot of jealousy from James in particular over that. He didn't want uh, Jason to leave the nest or to have any kind of independence outside Metallica. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Metallica was James' life. So he wanted it to be that way for everyone else. And um, that lyric, Love is Control, feels like him working through all those issues. And you think about it, he says, I'll die if I let go. But the song ends with him yelling, kill, 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 kill. Mm-hmm. So does that suggest that he has let go? Or is he inflicting that pain onto someone else? Uh, or himself? Well,
1: I thank you for mentioning this because I had this in my notes and I feel like it would have been a gross injustice for us to not talk about this with this song because it's such a huge part of the lyrical message. And, um, you know, the way I interpret it was those, that. Those lyrics that you mentioned are specifically about Jason Newstead. Control is law, love is control. I'll die if I let go. And I think when he's yelling.
0: I, I think James's mother is.
1: Well, yeah, and, 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 I, and I was going to get to that in a moment too, but when he's yelling kill, he, that's him saying, I've strangled, you know, all within my hands. I've taken all this life, all this love, and I've strangled it, and I've killed it. And I think also the way it's delivered. Yeah. It's him reflecting on the damage he's done, or the in. Um, but I think it's also him. The screaming and the repetition is him letting it all out, so he can move forward.
0: Exactly, you've killed that part of yourself, right?
1: And and uh, there is a movie going back to the point you made about his mother. There's a, a documentary out called Absent. I'm not sure if you've seen it or heard of it, um, but basically the movie, is, it takes a look at different people um, who grew up with um, an absentee father, and uh, there's like a professional boxer in the documentary, and uh, it chronicles a handful of people, and it ends with uh, about a 15-minute piece or so on James Hetfield's. And it's really interesting because Hatfield was never one to really sit down and be that open and that personal um, and really talk about his lyrics um, until post-rehab. And this is one of the examples where he really sits down and talks about um, the meaning behind some of his lyrics and how it relates to his childhood and his relationship with his parents. And uh, he speaks about The Unforgiven being in his opinion, probably the most personal song he's ever written in terms of uh, dealing with his childhood. And it talks, and they reference lyrics to Diary's Eve, and they reference um, a few others, including All Within My Hands, specifically um, the part um, the the chorus and the kill part. And he doesn't go into detail about it, but it's but it's shared in relation to that's how he knew to deal with relationships. He, in, growing up, not having a father, having you know his mother die young, he had abandonment issues. So the only way he knew to keep people close were to just literally strangle them because he would have to physically keep them as close as he possibly could.
0: Yeah. I think... It's really interesting to note in some kind of months of the pre-rehab Hetfield and the post-rehab and the post-rehab. He's still very vulnerable. He's like, he's like very fresh, like a baby or something. Like he's trying to redefine his identity. So he, he doesn't seem entirely comfortable with himself, but in later interviews, when he is talking about this stuff, like, um, uh, it's. I think it's called "This Monster Lives," like the Netflix little uh, sequel to some kind of monster. Yeah. He's talking back about this time period, and he seems, you know, so sober, so lucid, and like mature. Mm-hmm. So it's like all that, um, all that grieving and working through those issues has really paid off. You just didn't see the results necessarily until a while yeah, later. Yeah,
1: and you can tell, um, in his first couple appearances, like, he is very raw. Like, whether it's uh, the filming of the St. Anger video and some kind of monster they show him speaking to the prisoners, and he's, like, moved to tears, you know, it's just, a lot, like, a lot of raw emotion there. Or, I rem- I think I might have mentioned this in episode 9, I remember, but I remember seeing him in, um, MTV icon Aerosmith. It was one of, I think it was his first public appearances coming out of rehab, and they, it was like him, Lars, maybe Kirk, and they were just um coming out to like pay tribute, and he was like moved to tears talking about like the influence aerosmith had and so i I reflect on that time just like as a very raw time in his life, and now it's great because I feel like he's found the balance between old Hatfield, like the stage persona Hatfield, and that raw, vulnerable, funny goofy, more personable Heffield, that's the real Heffield. He sort of has found a good balance of, in um, the stage performance. And I think you see more of just a balanced, happier Heffield in interviews now, too. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: There's a bit in This Monster Lives where he talks about some kind of monster and the influence it's had on younger bands. He talks about having uh, musicians come up to him and saying, thank you for this documentary. Like it allowed me to see that I can be me or that I don't have to pretend to be this kind of 24 seven rock star all the time. So yeah, it's interesting to think of St. Anger as I think it's tempting to want to erase that as part of Metallica's journey and like certain people's fandom because you don't like her, whatever. But at this point, um, fifteen years later, it's pretty clear that like it was an integral part of them working through all that, and the fact that they're still a band at all, you know, is kind of a miracle in itself. Yeah. When you can, when you consider what they went through.
1: Yeah, and and still delivering. Uh, I, I mean, I wish the quantity of albums was. Uh, increase but i thought the quality is is still there too which is nice to see yeah it, it, and I, and i truly feel like i remember seeing you know going back to aerosmith for a second i remember seeing aerosmith when i was in middle school and even seventh grade me was like they're just going through the motions and that was mm-hmm. years ago i mean i'm not sure if they have i've not seen them since then so i'm i I'm not sure if they it's changed for them, but to me that them a band like them a band a band like Kiss like they're 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 touring for a different reason, and it's and it's mm-hmm. not so much for the for the I'll just say it's not for the art or enjoyment of it, and which which is yeah. fine too. Like it can be, it can be a business. It can be, uh, but when you see Metallica and you hear them talk and you hear them perform, I I, I truly think that they are still enjoying
0: it. Yeah, and they don't feel like a legacy act, and I think part of the reason is because they are playing to so many younger generations. Yeah. Like, they mean things to younger people, but yeah. they are still connecting. Um, it doesn't feel like there's a wall or a barrier between, you know, Gen Z kids and them.
1: Agreed.
0: And that I think that interest, that phenomenon has been interesting to observe with St. Anger, because if you go and look at the YouTube comments of Annie Senenghor's song, you'll be surprised like how many of them are positive. Yeah. And I like to think that a lot of those are from people who either have like always liked the album, you know, maybe not said as much as the, the very vocal majority, or people who kind of came to it with no preconceptions of what Metallica mm-hmm. should be. So they're listening to it you know, in the past tense, not in the present expecting Uh, Death Magnetic in 2003
1: so I sort of have this theory Um, and the theory Mm -hmm. is that the, the hate for this album from some not all I think some people truly dislike this album but I think for the most part it was almost the end thing it was a fad to hate this album and the reason I say that is because if you go back and you read a lot of the initial reviews; they're favorable. If you read, like, if you go back, read the review in Rolling Stone. They gave it four out of five stars. Um, a lot of like the, uh, at least the more mainstream publications gave it a much more favorable favorable review. I think when it came down to it, it was more of like the hardcore metal elitists who had a problem with the album, and then that just sort of started spreading.
0: I think there's a bit of a divide because you're right. Those those really prominent journalists, I don't think many of them were metal lifers. Like they had very broad tastes, but they weren't. I don't think they came into it with a lot of preconceptions. And also, Saint Anger, two thousand three, really, it was the first Metallica album to be dissected by the internet. Yes, in real time, and so you have blabbermouth and websites like that all the forums where people were starting to, like, uh, reach consensus yeah. and comment on it. I think San Anger's fate was really sealed once other metal musicians started coming out against it. Um, that became, like, the cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Slayer did, like, probably Rob Flynn. Um, if you, if you for mouth now. Yeah. There's just, like, countless examples.
1: And But what's interesting, too... Tying in with all that is that there have been stories of non metal musicians saying that they really like the album, like Jack White, um Jimmy Page.
0: Yeah. Both blues musicians.
1: Which yeah.
0: I think is interesting. Yeah. And um not they're not known to be metal fans otherwise, so
1: Yeah. I mean I think somebody yeah. like Jack White is a guy who just listens to anything and everything that from Metal to hip hop to blues to jazz, you True, know. But yeah. but it's definitely not what he's known for. and I definitely don't think it's something that like he he he's not a walking encyclopedia like Lars Ulrich is, you know.
0: No, and um, it's Bob Rock who told the story of um meeting those two guys and having them say specifically, "I love San Anger," which is like such a such a precise thing to do, you know. Like if you met yeah. Bob Rock, like. What's the first record you would, like thank him for? You'd have to go out of your way to say St Anger. I mean yeah. I would at this point, but, you know.
1: <laughs> but most people would probably reference the black album. Yeah, or you know, maybe Doctor feel Good <laughs> yeah, I, mm. But um, we're coming to an end here on our track by track breakdown of Saint Anger. You know, we, we Like I said, in episode 9, we do a lot more general talk. This was hopefully uh, a little bit more detailed. So the problem is with doing these track-by-track breakdowns is that you know there are some songs that you I could go on and on about, and then there are some songs that are like, uh, we're going to kind of stretch this out for time. <laughs> 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 but uh, hopefully, we gave um, each track enough love for you all out there. Mm.
0: Now, uh, shall I introduce
1: track twelve? <laughs> <laughs> well, All right. So we we have something special lined up. Before I I want to end on that note. I want that to be the last thing the Cast Militia hears before they hear the little. <laughs> fans not experts robot at the end of the episode so i i will i will first before i bring you back in to introduce it first uh where can they find you online anything you want to plug anything at all like that
0: sure so i will segue from that um i am on twitter at richard which is r-i-c-h-a-o-d Uh, you can find links to my latest uh, writing there Um, I tweet a lot about a wide variety of things (laughs) as Brandon has said
2: before
0: (laughs) right, but to introduce this track uh, so in my travels as a music writer um, one of the latest things I did last month was I wrote about the 20th anniversary of Britney Spears Baby One More Time for Billboard and you know, had some ideas bouncing around in my head. Being a music journalist is very strange, so sometimes it feels like you're listening to 10 records at once. And so somehow I got the idea to um, do a mashup of two of my, uh, my bigger articles from this year, that being Metallica, St. Anger, and Britney Spears, Baby One More Time, which just happened to be in the same key, c minor and essentially the same tempo about like 93 bpm <laughs> so i have constructed a frankenstein's monster <laughs> of these two songs saying anger me baby one more time which uh, <laughs> in in theory sounds like the worst song in the history of music <laughs> But in execution, I think is a little bit better than that. So uh, actually, that's It's a, actually, it's that's a little
1: bit better than the worst song in music history. <laughs> yeah,
0: because I actually put a lot of effort into really stitching the two together, right? Yeah. So I used a bit of Metallica's original San I used a bit of a karaoke version because there's no, like, full instrumental of San So I stitched the two together. Um, I put a few elements of Britney's voice and backing vocals and like the piano riff in there and kind of had to deal with all the weird uh, like time signature changes and stuff in there. A uh, lot of cutting and pasting. So, uh, I don't know. It makes sense to me. It might not to you, but
1: <laughs> please
0: send your hate mail to me on Twitter. If you got to flush it out, then do so proudly. I'll tell you what.
1: If you I if you, you hate it, tweet at r i c h a o d. If you love it, tweet at Metallicast Pod. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. No, uh please feel free. I'm going to put um, a link to this uh, to the video um, in the description for this episode. Uh, I think it's I. It's safe to say, Richard, that please feel free to share it anywhere and everywhere. <laughs>
0: mm. Although you do have the world premiere, so This
1: is the world's premiere. I feel like I'm... and Let's bring it back to early 2000s. I feel like I'm Carson Daly right now on TRL. This is the world's <laughs> premiere of uh, the greatest Metallica-Britney Spears mashup you will ever hear. And I think...
0: It actually is. Like I looked up the other ones, and then they're not half as
2: good.
1: So. It, I, I to to be honest, um, I listened to it earlier. It does strangely work well, and it is funny just in because of uh, what it is. But it does strangely work well, and uh, if you're a hardcore Metallica fan, if nothing else, I think you will get a laugh out of this. And I think Metallicast Militia, we can unite. We can get all the other Metallica podcasts out there to join forces. And I think we can make Richard go viral. And when he does go viral, yeah. I just want you all to at least mention in the comments how the world's premiere was on Metallicast.
0: Indeed. And also, I'm not sorry. I'm not apologizing for it.
1: <laughs> and if you if you do follow Richard on Twitter already, this is literally um, It's somebody who has had a couple conversations with him, and I feel like just starting to get to know him, I, I think it's safe to say this is the most Richard S. He thing uh, ever.
0: It is. Uh, it's one of my tweets come to life, and like it literally is. Well, the next it most literally thing is because
1: until... you tweeted this out. Yeah, and until... and I have jokingly said. If you do it, I'll play it on the show. And then you're like, okay, we'll see. And then I get a direct message on Twitter saying, "Uh, so this thing's halfway done. (laughs) What have I created? Some kind of monster. Dude, all right. (laughs) All right, so enjoy the mashup. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Metallicast Pod. Next month, December, is the one year anniversary of Metallicast. I want to celebrate with fellow Metallica fans. So email me, Metallicast at fansonexperts.com, or call the Metallicast Hotline, two zero three five four eight zero six zero nine. Be a part of the show with a voice message or with an email or with an interview. I'm setting up a few fan interviews for the, for the big one year show so we can. Celebrate together. Nothing sadder than having a birthday party for yourself. But hopefully, people will at least show up. Richard. Hell yeah. Anyways, here it is, the world's premiere. We've we've been teasing it. Now here it is. Saint Anger. Me one more time. Metal up your ass. Yeah.
2: not experts.